1: An intriguing setting for a Shakespeare play four centuries on might have us look no further than 2020, a year of plague, power struggles in a mighty state and larger-than-life leaders dividing loyalties and picking fights. For never was there a tale of such exhilarating woe as that of warring political households and star-crossed lovers separated by the lockdown. For centuries, people around the world have turned to the comedies, tragedies and histories of William Shakespeare to make sense of the struggles of their own times. And despite there being just one explicit reference to America in the English playwright's work in the Comedy of Errors and extra points if you didn't need to Google it, the US regards a lad from Stratford-upon-Avon as one of its own. There are nearly 150 summer Shakespeare festivals in America, dwarfing the number held anywhere else in the world. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, in an era of political turmoil and pandemic, what would Shakespeare make of Trump's America? My guest today has spent his career studying the life and works of the immortal bard, James Shapiro is Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and author of several books. His latest is Shakespeare in a Divided America and it explores the influence that the writer had on American society and what his works can tell us about the nation's history and maybe about its future too. James Shapiro, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: It's a delight to be here with you.
1: When you started writing this book coronavirus wasn't on anybody's mind. Plagues, however, do form a key part of William Shakespeare's life and their echoes are there uh, in his work. So how much of a parallel do you think you can draw there?
0: We tend to think of Shakespeare living and writing in a bucolic Elizabethan London, but the opposite was the case. Shortly after he began writing plays in 1592-93, a terrible outbreak of plague struck London took away the lives of one out of every seven Londoners. A decade later, in 1603, plague returned with a vengeance, taking the lives of one out of every five Londoners. And that plague would recur until 1610. So really the second half of Shakespeare's career in which he wrote his great tragedies, he was either writing for a theater-going public that was recovering from an epidemic, was anticipating one, or was in the midst of one.
1: So where would we see that in the writing?
0: That's a harder question to answer. In That's why we because, got a
1: professor on.
0: Yeah. You know, <laughs> sometimes it's a problem of why something is missing. Shakespeare kills people in lots of ways, drowns them, hangs them, decapitates them, but not death from plague. And one of the reasons for that is it's all around. The authorities shut the theaters because they don't know what causes plague, but they know that social distancing flattens the curve.
1: Are you suggesting that Shakespeare doesn't allude directly to plague because it's too close to home? If you like, it's it's a bit too close to the business model for a, a jobbing playwright.
0: It is, except for the rare moments where he just lands on plague. Mm. So when King Lear calls his daughter Goneril a plague sore, a carbuncle, that's about the worst thing anybody could say in a crowded globe theater in 1606, because that mark of plague was pretty much a death sentence, not only to the person carrying it, but to those who would be infected by the bearer of plague. So the moments are rare, but they are punishing. I'm very much aware reading Shakespeare's tragedies written during this period, like King Lear, Macbeth especially, that there are lessons for us that I've overlooked in a lifetime of reading and teaching and going to see these plays.
1: You've been writing about Shakespeare for nearly 30 years and you say that your latest work, Shakespeare in a Divided America, was inspired by President Donald Trump and by the 2016 election. Now, I mean, it perhaps sounds a bit rude to say this to someone who's just called a book, Shakespeare in a Divided America, but it's not exactly news to us that America is divided. It's not news that a lot of people of a liberal persuasion think that to be perhaps more so since the advent of Donald Trump. But there's something powerful enough in this phenomenon to make you think, I am going to link Donald Trump and William Shakespeare. What do you think that was?
0: There was a question that most of us have now forgotten shortly after November 2016. Was Donald Trump an aberration? Are the issues that have propelled Donald Trump into the White House, whether they're racism, immigration, gender issues, what are they of greater longstanding in American culture? Or is this really about one extraordinary and talented political operator? And my friend and colleague at Harvard, Stephen Greenblatt, wrote a wonderful book called Tyrant, in which he argued this is about one guy. I was less convinced. And Shakespeare is a wonderful tool. Since we don't agree about almost anything in America, Shakespeare, over the course of the past two centuries, has been the only writer that all Americans, whatever their cultural predispositions, left or right in the culture wars may be, they claim Shakespeare. And that's why I undertook that book and started going to southern states to talk to people and get out of my New York City bubble.
1: Uh, always a good idea. And that idea, I suppose, of whether it is all about one man, and it usually is in, in the powerful positions, one man. In in Shakespeare, there is often a balance in in the plays, isn't there, between how much is the tyrant simply something pops up and uh, is going to have to be vanquished for the flourishing of society, and how much there is buy-in from from people to that idea, to power, to excess, to demagoguery. It is attractive in Shakespeare as well as repellent, isn't it?
0: It is, but ultimately I think this is less about questions of tyranny than deeper questions about who and what is an American and how we have forged this republic. The public theatre stages for free two plays in Central Park every summer, two Shakespeare plays. And it's the legacy of Joe Papp, who created this in the 1960s. The artistic director of the public theater, Oscar Eustace, right after Trump's election, decided he would restage Julius Caesar. Hadn't been done in the park in many years. Not an easy play to do. And because, in addition to being an academic, I also serve on the board of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and, and I advise the Shakespeare Productions in the park in New York, I was brought in at an early point to have conversations about how this was going to go. I don't tell directors what to do, but I'm a sounding board. Oscar Eustace decided he was going to stage this in modern dress in which Julius Caesar is assassinated. The knives come out and he is killed on stage. And he had a trick up his sleeve. Being an artistic director means you have an unlimited budget. So we hired 50 actors who did nothing but sit in the audience until the moment Caesar was assassinated. And then they stood up and jeered and attacked the conspirators for having butchered this Trump-like Caesar. And what he was trying to do was create a sense of whiplash in the audience, mostly liberal New York City, make them realize that their deep wish to remove Trump by undemocratic means would necessarily destroy the republic
1: you could see the potential sort of dangers as well as the potential of that kind of treatment. Anything that deals with assassination is is particularly sensitive around American presidents, whether they're loved or loathed or loved and loathed, as in in this case. And it it strikes me as interesting because you talk about that potential of the theatre to both reflect, but also perhaps to risk violent reaction. When you talk about the Astor Place riots, the theatre riots of the early 19th century, so the sense of Being reactive goes back a very long way.
0: It does. And I should say that two years earlier, there had been a production in New York City in which a Barack Obama lookalike, this was directed by Rob Melrose, had been assassinated on stage and no one took offence by that. So no one really expected that far-right, alt-right agitators would offer $1,000 to anybody who would burst into the theatre and disrupt this production. And what happened was threats against the actors, against the director and his families, threats against theater companies across America soon followed in an effort to shut down this production. So I was sitting in the audience night after night, and I realized something about America that would soon be reported, but wasn't really quite clear at that moment, which was that the right was going to play to win, and the left was going to play to engage in certain ways. And that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but if you were sitting there watching individuals rush from the audience onto stage and mm-hmm. confront the actors, you would have thought the same thing.
1: You could also have thought, in a sense, that is what was being aimed for, if you do something that is so provocative. And actually, it's obviously, this doesn't apply if you have people facing actual physical danger. But wanting to engage and, and enrage the, the argument from theatre of cruelty to theatre of poverty, there are lots of schools of theatre that have sought to do that. I'm just perhaps hinting that you might be being unduly shocked by the reaction that it got?
0: Now, speaking in 2020, that's a very reasonable Mm. response. But the pressure Mm. for me was so great. At one point I had to leave the theater. It was just unbearable who was going to attack the actors next. And I got up to walk out of security seeing a white guy in his 60s assumed I was a Trump supporter about to rush the stage. So again, hindsight is twenty twenty in this. That's,
1: that's for sure. <laughs> We've gone a bit into that divided America that we see in front of us now. But in the book, you range very widely and you choose many moments from American history and you examine them through Shakespeare's work. There's an Atlantic between us. Shakespeare is the local lad from up the road here in pretty small England by comparison, when does the American fascination with Shakespeare begin?
0: It begins in the early 19th century. And it may well be that the sounds of the King James Bible and the sounds of Shakespeare made Shakespeare sound like scripture or secular scripture. It may well be that we didn't have writers as good as Shakespeare, and we adopted an English national poet as our own. You would have thought after 1776, we would have broken with you culturally as well as politically, but that did not happen. So by the time you get to the early 19th century, Individuals like Abraham Lincoln, who had no formal education to speak of, was being raised in part on a book his stepmother brought to his home on the prairie, that log house, and it had 32 excerpts from Shakespeare, which he memorized and recited for the rest of his life. So Shakespeare took over America in a way in the 19th century, it became common currency across the classes.
1: That seems relatively late. I'm really interested in that. What accounts for the peaks, or indeed, are there troughs in his influence too?
0: I think that's true. And I think that uh, there are peaks and valleys. And the peaks tend to come during moments where Americans are pitted against each other. And they turn to Shakespeare as an authority to support their views. The letters of Civil War soldiers, both fighting for the Confederacy and the Union, are filled with Shakespeare. Shakespeare became a way of expressing what was, for many, novel experiences and very dark experiences. Or when issues like race came to the foreground, a play like Othello became a way of addressing things like miscegenation, that were otherwise really difficult to confront.
1: And what do you think that's changed? I mean, the way that Othello is played, a lot of the interpretation around his relationship, the argument, his relationship with Desdemona have changed a lot. What do they reflect then in terms of the way that America is thinking about race when people put on a Shakespeare play that has that subject at its very heart?
0: It's hard to make clear to those who aren't Americans. How much Othello is the Shakespeare play? In part because we have never gotten beyond the racism and the issues of slavery that are embedded in our culture. Ira Aldridge, a great African-American actor, could play Othello on the London stage in the 1820s, but over a century would pass before Paul Robeson could do the same on Broadway. I think if you want to know where racial attitudes and hostilities are at any given moment in American history go to a production of Othello. Whether it's in the South before the Civil War, whether it's reading what the sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, wrote in an essay on Desdemona, in which he says Desdemona, who was strangled and suffocated to death by Othello at the end of that play, got what she deserved. And this was a great liberal opponent of slavery who couldn't wrap his head around miscegenation. So Othello, in that example and in more contemporary ones, becomes a way of grappling with the most difficult problem in American society.
1: Throughout American history, Shakespeare also garners fans from across the political spectrum. But both Abraham Lincoln and his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, shared a love of his works. I suppose not coincidentally that that assassination takes place in the theatre, but what do you make of that? I think
0: in a way it was inevitable. You had mentioned the Astor Place riots earlier that took place in May of 1849. And Unlike your fellow countrymen's responses to Shakespeare, we shed blood over Shakespeare. The Astor Place riots led to a fight over a production of Macbeth by a British actor. Twenty people were shot by the militia, over a hundred injured. So we take this stuff seriously and we take it to an extreme. And one of those extremes was the moment when a leading Shakespeare actor in America, John Wilkes Booth, shot another lover of Shakespeare, Abraham Lincoln. And he leaped onto the stage and he said, sic semper tyrannis, that's always with tyrants. A little kind of mini production of Julius Caesar, if you will, before he raced out the back of the theatre and tried to escape.
1: And do you think that there is also a reflection of Shakespeare in the action of American presidents in the, the past or today? We find, for instance, people often adopt a kind of Shakespearean tone or even a sort of slightly called Shakespeare in turn. I would say it's a bit there in the rhetoric of Boris Johnson, for instance, in the UK, because it is associated with power and because it's recognisable.
0: I think Boris is a really interesting example. Before the Brexit controversy, he sat down with a number of Shakespeare scholars, myself included, to talk about Shakespeare and was planning, as you know, to write a book about Shakespeare mm. because he is a good enough politician to know that seeing the world through a Shakespearean lens is a valuable thing to do. Uh, I'm, I'm still waiting for the call from Donald Trump.
1: And how much awareness would you say that Donald Trump has of Shakespearean language? I was going to ask if you've ever heard him consciously or unconsciously Echo Shakespeare. I think it's a bit of a cheap shot sometimes to say, well, he doesn't read books. I mean, like, you know, quite a lot of people don't read as many books as they say they read. like. But I think there is something interesting about the way that Donald Trump communicates, which is both very vernacular to the point of demagoguery, but it connects. And this has a certain grandiosity. It strikes me that that's, it's not unknown in Shakespeare, is it, to, to have that combination?
0: You're exactly right. And I think that Donald Trump would be a brilliant, brilliant reader of Shakespeare, whether it's the Jack Cave Rebellion in the early Henry VI plays or Richard III. He has incredible political instincts. And Shakespeare is a political writer. And I know I would learn a lot from sitting down with Donald Trump and talking Shakespeare, but Donald Trump, so far as I know, has never voluntarily sat down and read Shakespeare. Uh, Maybe at some point he will, and we'll share those insights because he has a way of seeing the world that would allow him to illuminate Shakespeare in ways that nobody else could do.
1: It really does feel like no other time in modern history. People hold up at home for fear of catching or spreading coronavirus. The theatres closed. What works of Shakespeare do you find resonate most in, in this time? We, we don't find plagues at the heart of Shakespeare's writing. But if you were to think of, of the mood that is around us, where would you turn?
0: I can tell you what the mood is in my native New York City, where uh, two blocks from where I'm speaking to you, there's a refrigerator truck in which I assume bodies of New Yorkers who cannot yet be buried are are waiting burial. So it's grim. I, I turn to a great passage in Macbeth when I think about this and It's one of those few places where Shakespeare actually alludes to plague, alludes to an individual leaving the house in the morning, wearing a flower on his cap, and he's dead before that flower dies.
1: How quickly tragedy can take over ordinary lives.
0: Yeah. And it's also a moment where Shakespeare connects politics, national politics, to plague. It's a moment where Ross at the end of the play says, alas, poor country, and he's speaking here about Scotland, but I hear it as America. A last poor country, almost afraid to know itself. It cannot be called our mother, but our grave. Where nothing but who knows nothing is once seen to smile. Where sighs and groans and shrieks that rend the air are made not marked. Where violent sorrow seems a modern ecstasy. The dead man's knell is there scarce as for who. And good men's lives expire before the flowers in their caps. Dying or ere they sicken. Well, that's a Brooklyn accent, can't act with that. But there's no passage that I know in Shakespeare that better captures the mood of coronavirus in late spring New York in 2020.
1: And rightly, you're reflecting on the somber side of Shakespeare's writing, but I think it would be unfair to go without reflecting. On the comedy and on the life enhancing and the the resilience of Shakespeare, that storylines often do end with a new order, often a new social order. And what would you turn to if you wanted, shall we say, light relief, but perhaps also spiritual light relief from the times around us?
0: I love the comedies, and Much Ado is a great example. And I've just been rewatching a production that was staged at the Public Theatre last summer. I'm reminded at the end of that play, that they go back off to war. That Shakespeare doesn't leave us in a fantasy land at the end of these comedies. Yes, a new community is created, but those communities which give us great pleasure in those marriages and dances always have a darker side because those comedies depend on creating community through exclusion. The Merchant of Venice ends with Shylock left out of the charm circle. Caliban is excluded at the end of The Tempest. Malvolio at the end of Twelfth Night. So even as we celebrate community, we have to be aware that community is based on exclusion as much as inclusion.
1: Well, James Shapiro, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
0: It's been a pleasure. Stay safe.
1: And before we're melted into air, thin air, podcast air, we'd love to know what you think, which Shakespeare play best sums up the trials and tribulations of our own time. Write to us, radio at economist.com. Or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, please do subscribe to us, economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Ann McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?